This podcast was recorded at Redemption Alhambra Village in Phoenix, Arizona. For more information about Redemption Alhambra Village, visit redemptionaz.com. We're going to dive into our scripture this morning. If you can stand with me. We're in Acts 17, verses 1 through 34, but we're not going to read all of 1 through 34 right now, but we're all going to walk through all of it. Right now, I want to stand and read verses 24 through 29. And then we're going to back up and then walk through the whole thing. All right. 24 to 29. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined a lot of periods and boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way towards him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art, imagination of man. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your intentionality that we would be spending time walking through these things this morning, Lord. I ask that you would plant your truths deep inside of our hearts this morning, Lord, and that you would cause them to flourish, to blossom, and to bear much fruit, Lord. Father, we give you all the honor and all the glory as we thank and worship you this morning. In Jesus' name, amen, amen, amen. Yeah, yeah, so I'm excited to walk through this text because there's a lot of things inside here, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to like just run through it all, but there's a lot of things, so we're going to go through all of 1 through 34, and I'm going to go through it in chunks. I'm going to read it, and, and then we're going to talk about it bit by bit. So let's look at verses 1 through 9 with me. Acts chapter 17. Now, verses 1 through 9. Now, when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous. And taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out of the crowd. Out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And Jason has received them, and they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. 
And the people and the city authorities were disturbed. And when they heard these things, disturbed when they heard these things, and when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest of them, they let them go. Now, so you see, Paul, a couple of things I want to point out. Just as we're walking through the book of Acts, it gives so much context to a lot of the Pauline epistles. Like Paul is here, and he has this vision about going to Macedonia. Now, in this vision of going to Macedonia, it mentioned that he was in Thessalonica. Now, Thessalonica is the capital of the province of Macedonia. And as you see, Paul ends up having to leave Macedonia because of persecution. But yet still, while he was there in Macedonia, a church was started. People came to the Lord. So when you look at like 1 and 2 Thessalonians, this is Paul following up on what was started there. Some of the things that get discussed in 1 and 2 Thessalonians, it has to do with this. So when you're reading through the book of Acts, you're going to see it talks about time when he's in Galatia. That gives context to the book of Galatians. You're going to see it's talked about when he was in Corinth. That gives context to 1 and 2 Corinthians, right? So as we're reading and walking through Acts, now when you go back and you read through these texts, it gives context to what he's writing about inside of those texts, right? So that's why I love walking through this. One of the things you see in this first section, 1 through 9, is... The diversity of people receiving the word of God. Amen. That's pointed out right here. He's inside of a Jewish synagogue, but inside of this Jewish synagogue, there are, there are people there that are, that are Greeks and women, and, and, and these Jews are, are, are coming to the knowledge of God. These devout Greeks are coming to the knowledge of, of God. And when he points out devout Greeks, you're not just talking about Jews that grew up culturally Greeks. You're talking about Greeks that was like hardcore at it. It talks about how there was many influential women that came to the knowledge and understanding of the true and living God. And I want to pull this thing out, but even as I'm thinking about pulling this thing out, one of the things that comes to my mind, like, I know we talk about diversity a lot here. We're always going in, and I don't want to feel like I'm, I'm beating the same drum over and over and over again. And I'm thinking about it. Should I even put it out? And the Lord is like, well, it's not really you beating that drum. Luke is the one put it out. You're just exposing it. There's a reason here that Luke thinks it's important to say this again for the unteenth time. He always makes sure he highlights these things. Yes. There's a reason for that. One of the things that we kind of understand, you got to think about why this Luke wants to make sure that we catches these things. And one of the things is that he wants us to understand that, that, that the gospel carries you on mission to people that are like you. Because Paul and them, they was Jews, but also the people that are not like you, people that are the same race and people that aren't the same race, people that like the same music and people that can't stand the same music. People, I mean, the gospel will carry you to all different kinds of people. Luke wants us to get an understanding of what the kingdom of God looks like. Right? This is what he's driving on. Like, I'm going to keep, I'm going to beat this drum over and over again because this kingdom that's being fleshed out, this is what it looks like. Yes. And here's the reality here. Yes. The reality is that things like, like racial pride or gender pride or this, 
Those things are really, really big issues and can hinder the fleshing out of the gospel. So this is why it's important to, to point it out. When I say racial and gender pride, not that you shouldn't be proud of what God made you. You should. But it should be in context of the God that made you that way, not in, in and of itself. So Luke makes sure he points that out. Another thing that we see in just in verses 1 through 9, but not just there, you're starting to see more and more this trend, a trend of leveraging politics against the gospel. You're starting to see that more and more, this trend of leveraging politics against the gospel. And it's not that politics in and of itself is, is bad, but the thing is, when, when politics are not submitted to the gospel, it becomes an enemy of the gospel. When you look at politics and, and, and you don't look at it from a gospel standpoint and how it's applied and walked out from an aspect of the gospel, that it becomes a stumbling block and a hindrance to it. You see this thing coming up, and they, and they, they levy this complaint against, against the Christians, and, and, and basically what's happening here, they're talking about, it's like this, the gospel versus politics in response to a concern of social unrest. Now, why do I say politics inside here? I don't want you to think I'm just bringing this to it, that I'm just, no, politics are the... Uh, uh, there in 7 it says they are acting against the decrees of Caesar saying that there is another king. Now, now there's no greater political name that you could mention in Rome than Caesar. That's sort of like me being able to say, okay, um, I'm talking about Trump and things that happen about his policies, or I'm talking about Obama and things that happen against his policies, that any president and their policies, the moment I do that, I'm having a political conversation. So when they go up here and they say, hey, these things are against Caesar and his decrees, they're basically saying King Caesar and his policies regarding government. But here's the thing here. Here's what they didn't mention. They didn't mention that it had anything to do with religion. And that was intentional because they know that 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 wouldn't have as much weight. The sixth it says, but right before it says, these men have turned the world upside down. These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. So basically they're accusing the Christians for causing this social unrest. And they're saying, hey, they're going to do it here too. They're going to do it. They turned the world upside down and now they're here too and stuff. And, and Jason, he let them in and... Here's the reality of what's going on here. See, the, the Jewish religious leaders of that time were so steeped in politics that they, they stopped listening for God. They were so steeped in, 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 in politics, and, and they viewed everything through the lenses of politics, power, and position. So much so that it had become an idol. They stopped listening for God. And now the rapid growth of the church, thus the spreading of the gospel in word and deed, became a threat to the political powers of the religious leaders. 
at large, political power had become a large part of their worldview. And the power of the gospel couldn't be found in politics and position. And then at that, it was confronting their worldview. So to them, the world was being turned upside down. So what they did was they submitted that the promoting of Jesus' kingship was a threat to Caesar's kingship as a political tool to stay in a position of control. But in doing that, what ends up happening is they end up exposing how disconnected their hearts had drifted from God's heart. They were denying the reality that as a nation of people, they were supposed to be a people that was waiting for a promised king. That's what they were supposed to be, a people waiting for a promised king. They officially throw that part of their identity under the bus back when Jesus is presented by Pilate, and Pilate is like, behold, your king. And they said, we have no king but Caesar. So we're like, okay, I guess you're not waiting for a coming king still. The reality, they had stopped looking for one. They had become really, really comfortable with political position and power, and they identified with it too much. And I think it's important to highlight that, highlight that here because in the culture and time that we are living in, we have to be so careful guarding our hearts against political idolatry and identifying with politics more than the gospel. Now look at verses 10 through 15. The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Now, these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Many of them therefore believed, with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. But when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul at Berea also, they came there too, agitating and stirring up the crowds. Then the brothers immediately sent Paul off on his way to the sea. But Silas and Timothy remained there. Those who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens, and after receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they departed. Now, I love this part, and there's some very interesting things inside this part, because Luke takes the time to to highlight that the brothers and sisters in Berea were more noble than those in Thessalonica. Now, when he says more noble than those in Thessalonica, he's not talking about everybody in Berea was born of noble birth from this kingship. But when he's talking about noble, he's saying that they were more admirable or honorable or higher in moral and mental character. He was saying that there was something that distinguished them in a good way from those in Thessalonica. 
The question is, what is it? And Luke points out what were the things that was distinguishing them? What was the thing that he's saying, man, that character trait is, is, is a noble character trait? He points out two things. And one, he says, they received the word of God with eagerness. Now, that's important. Because when we come to church on Sunday mornings, getting ready to, 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 to listen to the word of God proclaimed, a lot of times you'll find this thing here is either eagerness or religious duty. Like you have some people that are excited to hear the word of God, and, and that's how you should become like, man, I can't wait to hear the word of God today. I can't wait to sup and eat. Then you have some people that are going just out of religious duty. They have, there's nothing on the inside is leaping and jumping about hearing the word of God proclaimed. It's because they're supposed to be there. It's because, oh, my wife is going to say something if I don't. It's because, man, my mom says I need to go. And, and, but, but it's not because they're eager to hear the word of God. Just out of religious duty. I'm supposed to be here. This is what we do. We're Christians, ain't we? They come. My friends are here. I'm going to be able to have a time to talk with them. There's a difference between eagerly listening and contemplating versus being distracted and disengaged. In whatever way that looks like. Whatever way that distraction, that disengagement looks like. But Luke points this out because it's extremely important. Another thing he says as he describes why he considered them to be of noble, more noble than those in Thessalonica, not just that they was eager to receive the word, but then it said that they examined the scriptures daily to verify what they heard. Come on. Come on. It means that they were personally invested in their own knowledge and understanding of the gospel. Yeah. It wasn't the person that was preaching responsibility to make sure they understood it, but they had a personal yeah. investment in their own self. Yeah. They own their responsibility to guard their hearts that they would flourish in good health. I'm going home, and I'm going to read this too. Yeah. Then he says in 12, many of them therefore believed. The eagerness of the heart to receive the word and the willingness to study the word laid a foundation for genuine belief. They verified for themselves. That's something I, I pray that we grow deeply in, this eagerness to receive the word of God and the willingness to take personal responsibility in my own spiritual health, to study the word of God, to go back and say, man, I want to see that for myself. Let's look at 16 to 21. Now, now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him. As he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with them. 
And some said, what did this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you're presenting? For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now, all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling and hearing of something new. Athens was like the cultural center of the Roman world. You go to Athens, you've seen art all over the place, sculptures, architecture, beautiful architecture. They had market all over the place. Market, they had tons of people walking up and down the place. People were discussing the latest news and the latest philosophical ideas. All of this was happening over here. It was a really, really, really cultural place that everyone came to. Like, try to imagine, like, like, like First Fridays or Mill Ave or, or, or even, like, social media. Like, you know, where people have all their, their, their <laughs> social media is a place where people want to talk about all the latest news and, and all their philosophical ideas and stuff. But this was going on face to face. This was the, the atmosphere Paul finds himself in. And he looks around and he sees that the city was full of idols. Now, what did those idols look like? A lot of those idols were art installations. They were sculptures, architecture, the type of things that we can find in museums today as art installations from the Roman Greco era. A lot of those things were the, were the art that was around there and stuff, these, these beautiful pieces of art that was idols. Now, this is a tough part for a lot of us, right? Where we, a lot of us stumble and trip up and fall at, because when it comes to to how to view culture and arts, a lot of times we, we fall on one side of the fence or the other, right? For some people, they, they, they fall into this great sacred and secular divide, and, and it's, it's hard for us to appreciate, see, and celebrate God-given creativity, a creativity that, that reminds us of the creator of, of, of all of existence, unless it intentionally, directly points to Jesus, Right? And in that, we, we often forget that all things good comes from and points to God, even if God isn't acknowledged for it. Or the artist himself doesn't even realize it. But we have these eyes, we have these lens, but some of us find it really hard to, to because it didn't, it didn't have the word Jesus scrolled over it. So it's hard to see that. So since not, they totally disengage. And then you have some people that fall on the whole other opposite side of the spectrum where, to be frank, we idolize art itself. And that we appreciate the art. 
We see and, and celebrate the God-given creativity displayed in the art. We know that the true heart and intention of much of this art and culture is not to glorify God. That's not the purpose of it. But since we're created to worship, if it's not worshiping and exalting, God is worshiping and exalting something else. And if asked, we could, we could probably tell you the idols that are being worshipped through this particular display of art. Like Paul, we see the idolatry all around us, but unlike Paul, our hearts aren't grieved about it, though. That's the problem. We see it all over the place. We can tell you what it is. We can bob our heads to it. We can watch it. We can do all these things. This, this cuts me hard. But the reality of it, we're not grieved at the idolatry that we see inside of it. We're at peace with just celebrating the art, which in and of itself exposes a level of idolatry regarding art itself. We have to grow to a place in God where, where we see, appreciate, celebrate God-given creativity, a creativity that reminds us of the creator of all of existence, while at the exact same time our hearts are grieved at the idolatry of those who are not seeking to glorify said creator, but something else to that very art. It said Paul's spirit was provoked. Now, to provoke means to incite or stimulate to action. And the action that he was provoked to take was reasoning with the people. That's what it said. So he reasoned with the people. Basically, he engaged the culture that was producing the art. The idolatry of the city provoked his spirit to carry the gospel to the cultural heart of the city that it would influence the art that was being produced. It would influence the type of sculptures, the type of architecture. Like, it has to grieve you to such a way that it provokes you to want to carry the gospel in such a way that it influences culture. Because if all I do is just appreciate it, you're falling short. We see the idols of our culture all around us displayed through, through arts while we appreciate and celebrate the art itself, but should be moved. Another thing that happens here, it points out that he was, he was talking to, to the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers. And I want to point this out so we, we have an idea and feel of... of, of, of of someone there believes, so we can see the, 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 the bits and pieces of them in, in common day society, right? So these are the people that he was talking to, the Epicurean and Stoic philosopher. They, like, they represented two of the leading philosophical, philosophical schools of that time, right? Now, the Epicureans, they were, they were committed to an ethical system that tolerated the existence of gods but gave them no vital role. Basically, what they were saying is that maybe there are gods, maybe there is gods, maybe it's a bunch of them, I don't know, but they're so far off they are disconnected with what's going on right here. So since, they, since our view of them being so far off, if there are any, then we're not doing anything to have to 
to, to appease them. or They're not directing any part of our lives. They don't have any influence on how we live here on this earth. So basically, they made up their mind is that one of the things that was sent you was, was, was that pleasure was life's greatest good and goal. But not just pleasure that you just want to have as much fun as you can and burn out, but, but, but pleasure that will cause you to have the, the most long, longest life, the most experience, the most that you can while you're living right here, right now. Like the purpose of life was to experience tranquility through maximizing pleasure and minimizing pain. Stay away from negative people. Have a lot of good friends around you. But have no fear of the distant God's judgment or the afterlife. Basically, have your best life now because we're going to die and everything's just going to stop. That was the Epicureans. Now, Stoicism was essentially a pantheistic system of thought that prioritized logic over everything. So basically, things that couldn't be proven logically had little weight. They believed that the universe itself was a being with intelligence and, and will, and that the universe was, was God. Like, man, the, I feel like the universe is leading me this direction. I felt like the universe is doing this, and, and oh, look what the universe is doing. And basically, the universe was, was God and everything else. The people, the planet, the trees were all just manifestations of, of, of God. One with this one God that was basically everything. So they tried to sync with the natural laws that they observed and systemize them because that made more logical sense, all while denying the personal nature of God. Basically for them is when we all die, we just return to the essence of the universe and, and leave this material world. Now, world. now, Paul, on the other hand, believed that the universe was created by a personal God who was distinct from his creation but deeply loved his creation. And the resurrection that he was preaching contradicted both the Epicurean idea that death ended all existence and, that this, and the Stoic idea that uniting with the divine and disengaging from the material world was the ultimate goal. So, yeah, they had a problem with what he was saying because it conflicted with what they, they thought. Now, so they bring him up and they're like, all right, listen, we want to hear some more about this. Let's go talk at this particular spot. So look at verses 22 through 23. It says, so Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. In my notes, I, I, I highlighted this section and called it Building Bridges. Paul starts off by acknowledging and affirming that their pursuit of God through religion. Like, this is what you're really doing. You're really pursuing God. 
to all these things. You're really trying to find who, who, God, who God is. Though he disagreed with their philosophies and theology, he acknowledged it was all ways of seeking God. I get it. I think about that and I get it. I spent time studying Islam myself. I spent time studying Rastafarianism. I even, even at a point in time when I thought, man, probably all the different world religions was just climbing up the same mountain just on different sides of the mountain. When we get to the top of the mountain, we're all me. And then and that's the, after some time being a Christian and learning the truth about the gospel, I realized in all of that, what I was really searching for was the true and living God found in Jesus Christ. I just didn't realize it. There was something inside of me that had me searching. Paul points that out. You guys are really, really religious. You're looking to worship. You was created to worship. And he sees the inscription that says, to the unknown God, and for him he sees opportunity. He sees a doorway to walk through. Like, we have to be engaging people and, and keeping in mind for God to show us those opportunities, those doorways to walk through where I can like, listen, let me help you to see how this is really you actually looking for Christ. Let me point that out to you. You may not realize that. This is what you're really doing. At a heart level, I think about this whole scene that's going on, and I think, man, this scene represents the idolatry of the heart of man, seeking to worship, but who to worship is unknown. So we form idols to worship, waiting for somebody to proclaim to us the identity of this unknown God. Let's look at Paul's message when now he, he, he uses as a door to enter in. Now that he enter in, here's the message that he gives to them. He says, in, in 24 through 29, that's where I'm at. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by men. Nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything. Since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. He made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way towards him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us, because in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we indeed are his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. Let's look at a couple of the points that Paul makes inside his sermon. He points how big God is and that he doesn't live in temples and buildings made by human hands. He points out how grand he is. He points out that God is self-sustaining. He doesn't need your thing that you give to him. He doesn't need the stuff that you leave there. It's not that he comes down and eats it because he needs it. Even, even like he points out there's, there's nothing at all that you can offer to God that's not already his. Including you. Wow. Wow. He 
points out inside this text, he points out how all races and nations descended from one bloodline in Adam. This is important. This is one of the reasons why diversity cuts to the heart because it has to do with God's intentional plan with man in Adam with the seed of every single nation that would exist. So when we go in and we push into the diversity, we're pushing into what God intentionally meant for things to look like. This was the seed that was inside of Adam from the get-go. He points out how God is intentional with when and where each and every one of us would exist as individuals and as people group. Like, whatever period in time God was intentional, he knew the struggles that would be during those times. He knew the idols that would be during those times. He knew all the things that was there and yet intentionally said, you will exist during this period of time. He points out that it's God's plan that we would seek after him. And those genuinely seeking and searching him would find him and realize that he, that he was always right there. He wasn't afar off. Like some of the Epicureans believe, like God is so far off and disconnected. He's saying, no, no, no. Not only is he not far off and disconnected, he's right here. You're living, breathing, and moving inside of him. All of these things that you see reflect him. He's pointing out that God's very presence saturates all of life itself. That's why I love wearing those t-shirts, all of life is all for Jesus. Because that's a true statement. Saturating every aspect of life. The band can come now. Then he talks about the image of God, how it cannot be crafted by the artistic imagination and skills of man. Now, this is important and stood out to me. How the image of God cannot be crafted by the artistic imagination and skill of man. Whether it's statues, whether it's figurines, whether it's pictures, whether it's classic pictures by Leonardo da Vinci, whether it's necklaces and chains, the image of God cannot be crafted by the skill and artistic creation of man. The reason why the Ten Commandments said not to even try to create an image of God is because, A, according to Genesis, God has already created his image in creation in the creation of man. So don't try to draw and create and sculpt something thinking that that represents the image of God because God created his image and in his, his image that he created in the man, he continues to replicate that image through pregnancy and childbirth. Like, so he's still continuing to create his image. His image is one that is living. His image is one that is breathing, one that is thinking and creating and demonstrating intelligence, reflecting God's image throughout all of existence, through how it lives. That any still, lifeless, soulless, unintelligent, non-creating image that we form and claim represents God falls drastically short and instead offers up a distortion of his image. This is what Paul challenges. This is what God said. Don't, don't, 
That's my job to create my image. So the question is, how do we intentionally live and function with the knowledge and understanding that God himself had displayed his own artistic skills and created us as his image? Now what does it look like to live as an image bearer of God? That's why we study the Bible. I want to close out with verses 30 to 34 as we prep to take communion. Now in 30 to 34, he says, The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Because he had fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. But others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst. But some joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius, Aeropagite, and a woman named Damaris, and other with them. As we get ready to spend time in prayer and communion, I want to purposely end it right there because God requires a response. This podcast was recorded at Redemption Alhambra Village in Phoenix, Arizona. For more information about Redemption Alhambra Village, visit redemptionaz.com. 